If you would turn in your copy of the scriptures to Titus chapter 1. We're going to be looking at a portion of scripture that's very focused on one particular topic. It's on leadership within the church. As we look at what Paul's writing about here, he pulls no punches as he describes these people. He gives this honest description of the people on the island of Crete. He says, for there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of them, one of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Not exactly the sweetest neighborhood in which to plant a church. But this is the battlefield on which churches in cities across the island of Crete were waging war for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Their goal was to win souls. Their goal was to disciple men and women to impact families, communities, and the entire island of Crete. How can they get there? How could this happen? See, the church's objective is not simply survival through the battle of adversaries. Sometimes we limit it. We say we just want to get by. We want to be able to overcome this. But that is not their goal. God has planted these churches to thrive. Planted them to thrive so that the name of Christ is exalted and men and women and children know and follow him. Now we don't know what all Paul meant when he said, I want you to finish up the things that are lacking. I want you to complete the things that are lacking. But it is clear that our most strategic and essential step was to appoint elders in each city. It was crucial. It was was absolutely crucial in Crete in 60 AD that this happened if the churches were going to survive. In an increasingly hostile 21st century culture, It is just as crucial in our world today. Elders were important then. They are important today for the church to grow and to be established with strength. For it to be a sound fellowship. May the scriptures this morning in Titus chapter 1, 5 through 9, teach us three things in particular. One is that there is a need for elders in the church. Two, who the type of men are that are to be elders. And three... The absolute necessity of praying for elders in our church. Let me give those objectives again. That we would see the need for elders in the church. The type of men elders are to be. And the necessity of praying for the elders in our church. Please join with me as we pray and we dig into these scriptures. Heavenly Father. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence. We thank you that we have come together this morning. Because you have drawn us to yourself and you have given us your son as a sacrifice so that we may become sons as well and daughters of the living God. And Father, you have made this thing called a church. You have made the bride very, very dear to you. And we pray that we will understand this aspect of it this morning more clearly. Lord, why elders? Who are they to be? How do we encourage that and and thrive and work and, and exist as a church with that kind of a structure?
And Lord, most of all, how do we glorify and honor you in this city in which we are? We're not in Crete. We're in Kansas. We're in a city in that small state. But Father, we pray that just like these folks wanted to glorify and honor you, we pray that you would do that through us and you would help us to grow this morning. Father, please speak in spite of me. You know my weaknesses, Lord, you know my inadequacies, but your word is not inadequate. It is living, it is powerful. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces even to dividing soul and spirit, and it judges the thoughts and intents of the heart. Lord, please use your word in our lives. May your Holy Spirit be set free to speak and lead us nearer to you this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. It's a bit uncomfortable to preach this passage because it brings the role of elder what Phil and Brad and I serve at here at the church under what you might call a biblical microscope. We're looking at it very closely. And as I examined the need for elders and the requirements listed, I found myself often feeling very, very inadequate and sometimes hypocritical. One prominent preacher described it this way, it really is a very unsettling passage of Scripture. I would rather have someone else teach it than to have to teach it myself. I think I'd rather listen to it than say it. It's tough to be your own pastor. But this is the Word of God. It is given for our instruction. And it can be very intimidating. In fact, it should be intimidating. It is actual communication. The Word of God is His Word breathed out from God to us. In its original form. God breathing his word. His intention to us directly. God describes his word. With several different metaphors or ideas. He calls it a fire. He calls it a hammer. He sometimes calls it a double edged sword. It's a light in darkness. It's a comfort. And he says it's living. And it is powerful. Praise God that he has given us. Such an amazing gift as this. May the Spirit of God lead us now as we study His Word on elders. So let's dig in with verse 5. We read there, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. What needs to be done here? Paul says, This is why I left you there in that country of liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. You have work to do. And this is a challenging crew to work with. You see, there were several cities spread across the island of Crete. You'll see up there places like Phoenix, Fairhaven, where Paul actually came into the port there, Lasia, Gortina, Gnosis. Likely in many of these towns and perhaps many others, there were brand new churches that had sprung up as the gospel began to spread. Paul realized, though, that these churches were in serious need. In this very first verse, we see three things revealed in Paul's command to Titus. First of all, I want you to see that Paul cares for believers. He is following up on the men and women who have trusted in Christ. He cares about them. He doesn't leave new Christians to flounder around and somehow figure out how to do this for themselves. Their spiritual lives are dear to him and he wants them to continue to grow in Christ. The most effective way for that to happen 
Paul says it's to establish sound churches for fellowship and discipling. Secondly, Paul does not micromanage. He is a powerful gospel preacher. And he is a most effective teacher of doctrine. But he cannot do it all. He cannot be everywhere at one time with every person who is coming into Christ's kingdom. It's literally impossible. The, he must delegate and he must entrust. He must entrust much of this load to men like Titus, like Timothy, like Trophimus, like Tychicus, John Mark, others. And thirdly, we see that Paul trusts Titus. Titus demonstrated to Paul that he was a man who both followed instructions that were given, but also takes initiative to move forward on his own. Paul wrote this about Titus in a letter to the church in Corinth, saying, But thanks be to God, who put the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord. One commentator described Titus saying, With respect to Titus, one could almost say that for him no task was too difficult to be attempted and no challenge too formidable to be met. And if we look at this carefully, we see that Paul, a master discipler of men, is instructing Titus to do exactly the very same thing he himself is doing. Look what he's saying to Titus. Titus, follow up with the churches in each city. Secondly, delegate leadership. Don't micromanage. Manage. Delegate leadership authority by appointing elders. And thirdly, trust. Titus, you've got to trust the men to lead these churches for Christ. And then that raises the question, well, who will these men be? Who do I look for? Here are the signs of an elder. These are the kind of men that will lead. Verse 6. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. With that verse we see, he is a blameless man. But first of all, just to make this very clear, in this day and age especially, first of all, an elder is a man. Male. That used to be self-explanatory. Not so much anymore. But we know what Paul is saying. This is a man, a biological male, that God has put in this position. He is a man. And we see here the indefinite pronoun tis is used. Here it's translated man, but sometimes it is translated as anyone. But in this case we know elders are men for the following reasons. One, it is not possible for a woman... To be a one woman man. It's very simple. Secondly, 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 11 through 12. Paul commanded, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather she is to remain quiet. This disqualifies her from the elder role of teaching and leading mixed congregations of men and women in public church worship services. Secondly, not only is the elder a man, but he is a blameless man. Blameless or above reproach. It's listed twice here in these verses. And it's an overarching theme of this man's life. The man who would be an elder. Now this does not mean that he is perfect. 
doesn't mean that he is flawless. It doesn't mean that he is without sin. If that is what it meant, there would be no elders at all. And in fact, if anyone claimed to have those requirements, he would be considered one who calls God a liar, according to what John wrote in his epistle. You cannot say that you're without sin. An elder does not claim that, nor can he be that. Literally, blameless here means not arrestable or unrebukable. In other words, there should be no area in the elder's life requiring strong discipline or major correction. Blameless implies that there is no known reason that suggests future failure or attack on this man or consequently the church. His reputation looks clean. The importance of this is obvious. But then we ask, well, how do you evaluate that? What do you use as a blameless gauge or an evaluation tool that lets us see this man's heart? How will we know if he is blameless? Paul says, look at his home. Look at his home. The evidence will be there. This home is the stage of truth. John Stott wrote, the married pastor is called to leadership in two families, his and God's. And the former is to be the training ground of the latter. At home then, first of all, an elder is the husband of one wife. Literally, this means a one-woman man. An elder gives his wife his complete, full devotion. This means far more than simply he has not recently divorced or that he is not committing polygamy, which means being married to more than one woman at a time. Thomas Oden describes the pervading culture surrounding the church in Titus' age, and he says this, Marriage was undermined by frequent divorce, widespread adultery, and rampant homosexuality. The elder, the candidate for elder, stands out dramatically from these peers. He fulfills the biblical role of a husband with one woman, his wife, in these ways. He dwells with her in knowledge. He seeks to understand her. He listens to her. He asks her questions. He honors her as a weaker vessel. He looks out for her. He takes special caution and preparation for her well-being. He nourishes her heart. He spiritually washes her with God's word. The elder in love lays down his life for his wife just as Christ did for the church. Now that much seems acceptable to most of us. But there is much disagreement between faithful Bible-believing men on what this requirement specifically includes. A single man. He has no wife. Therefore, he is not technically a husband of one wife. There are those who see this as eliminating single men. Our church does not take that position. Secondly, almost all agree that husband of one wife disqualifies a man if he is involved in polygamy. We agree that polygamy disqualifies a man from eldership. Thirdly, still others believe that a man whose wife dies and then he later remarries cannot qualify because he has had more than one wife. But we do not see this as a disqualification for eldership 
in our assembly. But the position of far greater debate among churches has been that a man who has been divorced and then remarries while his first wife is living does not meet the specific qualification of an elder. Now, if I were simply teaching on this to a group of pastors somewhere, I could merely give a caution about placing such a brother in the position of elder and move on to the next topic. But I am speaking to brothers and sisters who I, along with Brad and Phil, have the responsibility to serve and to lead. The position of our church is that a man who has been divorced and then remarries while his first wife is living may certainly be a saved brother, saved by grace, and may actively serve in ministry in this church. But we feel he does not meet this qualification for the role of an elder under the requirement of the husband of one wife. Secondly, another difficult one. The second role of an elder demonstrates in his home is that of being a father. Verse 6 reads that the elder must have faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination. This is sometimes translated as his children are believers or he is having children who believe. As with the previous requirement, this one is interpreted differently by men who are very faithful to Scripture and the church. And I will tell you, you and I, many of us listen to men on both sides of these issues. And we, we love them, we respect them, and we gain much from their teaching. Does this verse then mean that all of an elder's children must be believers? If he has nine faithful missionary children and one who does not profess by Christ, is he disqualified to be an elder? Are men with younger children disqualified because these children have not yet come to believe in Christ? Does this refer only to children who are still in the elder's home? Or does it include his adult children at any age of independence long gone from the home? If an adult son or daughter abandons Christ later in life, should the father step down as an elder at that time? Should this be translated as faithful children or believing children? Is that enough questions for you all? <laughs> you, you see how this can be difficult. I do not want to manipulate or take lightly this passage in any way. As most of you realize, I have several children who are believers in Christ. And I have a son who has confessed that he is not a believer or follower of Christ. It is very sobering, no matter what your perspective is. Very convincing and sincere quotes from strong Orthodox pastors and theologians could be given to support a variety of positions on this requirement. This requirement in Titus chapter 1 is similar, but it's not identical to the one given in 1 Timothy chapter 3. There Paul states that an elder is one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. The point made in both 1 Timothy and here in Titus seems to be that Titus and Timothy are to look for elder candidates who have a maturity and giftedness to lead a well-ordered family. Paul gives the reason for this requirement to Timothy and he says, 
For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? One thing is clear. A man's marriage and his children give evidence of the ability of the man to manage people, both believers and unbelievers. In the church, an elder will be called upon to handle both. There will be faithful believers, faithful followers of Christ, as well as those who will turn out to be wolves in sheep's clothing and apostates who at one time appeared to be authentic. Wisdom, faith, patience, courage, humility, and maturity with people. All of these will be needed many times throughout the ministry of an elder's life. I ask you to consider these things. You are intelligent people. Many of you spend much time on your knees and seeking God and His Word. Examine these things. Think them over carefully and prayerfully. And if you have questions, please, please ask. Please speak with us. Paul continues on in verse 7 with some very specific things here. Again, he says, For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. Back up at the beginning of that verse. The Bible's leadership titles here, bishop, overseer, or elder, they're all synonymous. Paul uses them interchangeably for the same leadership role in these three verses here. Bishop, elder, and overseer. The apostle Peter does the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 5. He writes there, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder, And I must interject just briefly. Paul is a fellow elder. He is not a pope. He is not a chief elder. He is not in any way higher in authority than the other apostles with whom he served. Peter was an elder. And he goes on to say, And a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers. So if you see the word overseer, bishop, or elder, don't be confused. It's the same role that Paul is talking about. It also says here that the the elder is to be a steward of God. Now the word steward describes a house manager. A steward is one who manages the domestic affairs of a family, a business, or a community. You see, the elder assumes a steward role in the house of God. He is to manage God's resources. He is under God's authority. And he is to lead with love and humility the members of God's household. Such a steward, it says, must have none of the following five bad attitudes. Bad attitudes. First of all, he must not be self-willed. That's self-indulgent. One who is pleased with himself and looks down upon or despises others. Such a man does what he wants without regard to the input and the authority of the other elders or of those of whom he is serving. He is self-willed. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 10 says, Those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self willed. We do not want a man in the role of elders, eldership, who is self-willed. B, he is quick not to be quick-tempered. Hendrickson said he is not given to outbursts of wrath. He has a long fuse. He suffers long without 
exploding. You see, a quick-tempered man does what? He destroys trust. He breaks relationships. He crushes the brokenhearted. He must not be quick-tempered. He must not be given to wine. He's not to be a drunkard. An elder will not have a reputation as a drinker. The scripture does not insist that a believer abstain from wine. But those in roles of leadership, particularly spiritual leadership as an elder, we believe that Scripture gives many warnings concerning wine and strong drink. They are described with the potential of devastating effect on judgment and ability in those who drink them. Because of the elders' grave responsibility, the reality of fervent spiritual warfare and the sobering potential for failure As elders, we have abstained from alcohol motivated by God's warning in scriptures like these. And this is why we have taken this strong position. Isaiah 28, 7. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. We do not want that to happen. So we take extra precaution on that. Isaiah 56 verses 10 through 12. His watchmen are blind. All of them know nothing. All of them are mute dogs unable to bark. Dreamers lying down who love to slumber. And the dogs are greedy. They are not satisfied. And they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each one to his unjust gain, to the last one. Come, they say, let us get wine and let us drink heavily of strong drink. And tomorrow will be like today, only more so. An elder is also not violent. In the King James Version, it translates that he is not a striker. This term is based on the word fist. He doesn't settle matters of dispute with physical violence. Hendrickson again said, Think of the backwoodsman, the backwoodsman of former days, who literally wore a chip on his shoulder as a challenge to fight anyone who would dare knock it off. It's where we get the expression, he carries a chip on his shoulder. That may seem like a strange one for us, but elders are not to be fighters, not to be strikers. An elder is also not to be greedy for money. Now, now we get that one. We understand that one. We see it on, on television all the time. We may even see it locally. We do see it locally. He is not to be greedy for money because he is content financially. When I say that, I, I go to Paul's statement in Philippians chapter 4. He gives the perfect heart. Here's what Paul says. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things Through him who strengthens me. When you see that verse. Often on the television screen. By somebody who hit a home run. Or or scored a touchdown. that's, That's not the context. 
But Paul is saying, I can be content in, any, every, in every situation, well-fed or hungry, in prison or free, because I can do all things through the strength of Christ in me. To Timothy, Paul wrote this. He said, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, then many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. At stake is a question raised by one commentator. Can this elder be trusted with the church's funds? Judas, who lived and ministered for three years alongside Jesus himself and with the other apostles, could not. Those are the must-not-be's, five of them. He must not be these things. Now we shift to what an elder's life must be. He must be, in verse 8, hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, and self-controlled. The first required character is hospitality. This can be defined, I, I like this definition, of enjoying, doing, and enabling fellowship. Enjoying, doing, and enabling fellowship. With others and especially with strangers. Romans 12 verse 16 says, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. You don't know how tempting that is to forget that command. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Hebrews 13.2 Do not forget to entertain strangers. For by so doing some have unwittingly entertained angels. 1 Peter 4.9 Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Is that tough? Sometimes it is, isn't it? Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Hospitality may be needed when we're not ready for it or prepared or comfortable. But show hospitality without grumbling. The literal translation of hospitality is to love strangers. That's what it means. It is an outward demonstration of love for others. You are using your resources, including your time, your money, and your home, to build up those in the family of God or those outside of it who are needy. Hospitality is a way to open doors for evangelism. And I've seen that many times through many of you. Opening your doors to those who are lost, to bring them in and build relationships. It is a way to provide comfort and encouragement to some who are hurting or are lonely. It is God's way of building up His body. The body of Christ, built up through hospitality. Now last Sunday, we watched... A brief video, five minutes, of our brother Pavlo in the Ukraine describing a wonderful demonstration of hospitality. And it was through the church in Kiev. That church responds this way 
Because Pavlo and Ina demonstrate this kind of hospitality themselves. I know, some of the rest of us know, we have been in their home, a very modest home in the heart of Kiev, and had dinner there, spent the night there, seen them entertain others. The church is doing that. Now I just want to go through this again because I still marvel at what is going on this very day in Kiev. Pavlo writes, each Sunday the Lord sends about 350 people to our church. Now if they were a mega church of 2,000, that might not be a big deal. That church is 50 people. And God is sending 350 people there every Sunday. From the heart of Kiev and from the eastern front where they're being attacked by the Russians. 350 people come to our church, among whom there are refugees from Kiev, Kharkiv, Donetsk, Luhansk, Zaporizhia, and Mykolaiv. Since the war began, we have been preaching Christ to them, distributing food packages, having a fellowship during dinner, during, and providing spiritual counseling. All the members of our church who have remained in the city are involved in this ministry. For each Sunday dinner, we use up to 300 sets of disposable tableware, 20 kilograms of cereal, 10 kilograms of onions, 10 kilograms of carrots, 7 kilograms of sugar, 20 cans of stew, 25 loaves of bread, 80 liters of drinks, and 5 liters of oil. And each Sunday we distribute about 1,000 kilograms over a ton of products. And we have already seen the fruits of this ministry. Nineteen have confessed Christ and are being discipled. We believe that the Lord will do even more. We need your prayers. Pray for the wisdom to carry out everything that the Lord has planned for us. For the hearts of the people who have suffered and so that they not only receive physical help but also know the Savior and reconcile with Him. Our brother Pablo. Hospitality on a church level. You don't have to feed 350 people each Sunday. Theirs is a very unique opportunity in a time of great need and great openness to the gospel. But I hope, I hope we will be willing when such an opportunity comes our way. And we can prepare for that by demonstrating hospitality now. Even if you are not an elder or don't desire to be one, when a missionary comes to speak at our church, Ask for an opportunity to have them for lunch or for breakfast. Team up with another family or a single in the church and, and do a meal. Invite some strangers or unbelievers or people from the assembly. Have someone over just for dessert. This will build the love and depth of our church fellowship in ways we have yet to see and prepare us for times ahead. And I know I, I could tell you two or three people and couples, families I know that are doing that right as we speak. And there's probably many more that I do not know. But I want to encourage you, hospitality is so key for the growth of the church, for evangelism, for discipling. Secondly, he must be a lover of what is good. He loves goodness. He loves virtue. He is ready to do what is beneficial to others. It can also be sometimes translated, an elder is to be a lover of good people. Thirdly, he's to be sober-minded. He is to be serious about life. He can laugh. He can tell bad dad jokes. He can do those kind of things. But his heart desires to see life through the eyes of God and through his word. One commentator described the elder's perspective this way. The realities that the world has lost 
disobedient to God, and bound for hell, leave little room for frivolity in his ministry. Let me give you those three again. The realities that the world is lost, disobedient to God, and bound for hell, leave little room for frivolity in his ministry. Paul writes this of a sober thinker in Philippians chapter 4 verse 8. He says, finally brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything worthy of praise, meditate on these things. Think on these things. Let that be what fills your mind. Let me tell you again, things that are true, noble, just, pure, lovely, of good report, virtuous, anything praiseworthy, let that fill your mind. Fourthly, an elder is to be just. Simply, this means he is to be righteous. He is to perform one's duty toward man, said Hendrickson. And he is to be holy, living in a godly manner, performing one's duty toward God, the commentator said. And then we see he is to be self-controlled. He possesses the moral strength to curb or master his sinful desires and impulses. Brothers, this is a bigger battle than most of us would like to admit. And it is happening throughout congregations and throughout the pockets of men everywhere. We struggle with this. That we curb our desires, our appetites. We must. We must do that. Not simply to be elders, but to be leaders and to lead our families. And to be those in the church that can, can be effective impacting others with the gospel. Proverbs 16, 32 touches on the fact that he is slow to anger and is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. But Paul says it very, very specifically in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. He says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate, self-controlled in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. The first way I learned that verse was, I beat my body and make it my slave. So that after I have preached to others, I will not be disqualified for the prize. The final ingredient in an elder's life is of the highest importance. That is why Paul gives it greater explanation here. An elder must be ready with the sword. An elder must be ready with the sword. We read in verse 9, he is holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. This is one ability of elders that is not required of deacons. The elder must be a teacher of the word. Teaching can occur in a variety of settings. It doesn't have to be here at the pulpit. He can be a teacher of small groups, one-on-one, and preaching to the assembly. Preaching and teaching within his family. Although he may not teach regularly, he must be a man who is able and effective 
in explaining the Word of God. From verse 9, though, we are told that an elder demonstrates the following three with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. I'm going to give you three things. First of all, commitment to the Word of God. There is an account of a great warrior by the name of Eleazar given in 2 Samuel chapter 23. He was one of David's mighty men. They call these guys powerful, valiant champions. What a label to carry, huh men? <laughs> Wouldn't that be amazing? They were mighty men, they were champions, they were valiant. How did they earn such a title? Let me read from 2 Samuel 23 verse 9. And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men when David, with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle. And the men of Israel had retreated. The men of Israel had retreated in this battle. Verse 10, Eleazar arose and attacked. While the army of Israel ran in retreat, this man arose and he attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck. That means it was frozen fast. It cleaved to the handle of his sword. He could not let go. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the people returned after him only to plunder. You see, when the rest of the army of Israel had finally stopped running away and returned to the battlefront, it was over. There stood a courageous Eleazar, his hand cramped to that sword handle. The battle was completed. Matthew Henry says, Eleazar defied the Philistines as they by Goliath had defied Israel, but with better success and greater bravery. For when the men of Israel had gone away, he not only kept his ground, but arose and smote the Philistines, on whom God struck a terror equal to the courage with which this great hero was inspired. His hand was weary, and yet it clave to his sword. As long as he had any strength remaining, he held his weapon and followed his blow. I hope you see the analogy, the, the connection he would not let go of the sword. A Christian leader is committed to God's word because he sees it is the word of God, living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. May the elder's heart and mind cleave fast to the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, just as Eliezer's hand cleaved to his sword of victory. We have that as our weapon. Use it. Study it. Commit yourself to it. Stop saying, well, I know I should spend more time in the Word than I do. Or I could be spending more time in it. We all could do that. Nobody can say, no, everybody can say that. But if you want to handle that sword like that, effective in conversation for your children, for your spouse, for your neighbor, to cut down all things that are exalting themselves against the knowledge of God and bringing everything into captivity to the obedience of Christ, you must have the sword of the Spirit and be able to use it. And then never let go. Let 
let you be found with your hand clinging to that sword. Secondly, an elder demonstrates training in the Word of God. Training. Paul exhorts Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2, And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will also be able to teach others. In 2 Timothy 2.15, he says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. An elder is a man who has been taught and is continuing to be taught and is teaching others the word of God. Calvin says that such a man has wisdom in knowing how to apply God's word to the profit of the people. An elder believes all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is breathed from God himself and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And lastly, thirdly, an elderly, excuse me, an elder demonstrates execution with the word of God. Execution. 1 Peter 3.15 says, By sound doctrine he exhorts and convicts those who contradict. Excuse me, that's in Titus. In 1 Peter 3.15 he says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. With meekness and fear. Jude 1.3 Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly. Ready to give a defense? Contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And 2 Corinthians 10 verses 4 through 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. The elder will execute with the word of God. He will give a defense. He will contend earnestly. He will pull down strongholds, cast down arguments, and bring everything into captivity to obedience of Christ. In conclusion, that is quite a list and none of us are ready for that. I certainly am not. But by God's grace, God has placed some of you. By God's grace, He will place some of you in these roles. Some of you will be wives of elders. Some of you will be next door neighbors, friends, children of elders. We need your prayers. This sermon was not at all a description of myself. It was an exposition of Paul's commands to Titus. And I desire to be that and I hope I am where I fall short. Pray for me and speak with me. But an elder's work includes these. It is a grave responsibility Hebrews 13 verse 17 it says obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. The elders must give an account for what happens to the souls of each of you in this assembly. There is a stricter judgment. James says my brethren not, not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. There is a much higher expectation, requirement for commitment, a stricter judgment. And then thirdly, a whole host of them there you'll see on your, I believe on your handout. 
He is to be ruling or directing the affairs of the church. He is to be preaching and teaching. He is to pray for the sick. He is to care for the church and be an example. He is to determine policies in the church and he is to ordain other leaders. In this letter to Titus, in his first letter to Timothy, Paul focuses far more upon the character of an elder than he does on the duties he carries out. David Dixon wrote this, The office and work being spiritual, it is necessary that elders should be spiritual men. It is not necessary that they be men of great gifts or worldly position, of wealth or high education, but it is indispensably necessary that they be men of God at peace with Him, new creatures in Christ Jesus. And then in closing, here's Jesus' description in Mark 10 of those who will lead. Jesus gave this description of leadership to His disciples in the Gospel of Mark. You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. Why do we follow that? Because Christ said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for all. I hope this morning from these passages you can see the need for elders, leadership, but you also see the requirements and the standards that are there. And probably as much as anything, I, I ask that you would pray. You'd see the necessity to pray for elders. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, where I have added to it or, or been astray, forgive me. Please wash it away. But I do pray that your spirit would, wash, would move in deeply into our minds and hearts with the truth of what you have here. Lord, may we understand it and grow. Lord, I pray that you would raise up many many of our men to be elders to be leaders whether in this church or other churches that we may have the privilege of being a part of planting or encouraging Lord raise up men but I pray that you would raise up men and women in this church to be ambassadors for Christ that the name of Christ would would be spread throughout this city the state throughout this nation and abroad Lord, we have such little time. I wish I really under even understood that. But I pray that you would grip us with the brevity of time that we have to serve you and to grow your kingdom and that we would also see the sobriety, that eternity, eternity is what we're talking about, in heaven or in hell, in fellowship with God or under his wrath. Lord, move us, compel us, that the love of Christ would compel us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.